So the obvious question that you should be asking us is what are we doing here, right? Hey, that's a great question, but I want to go back to this. We, we, the reality is, is we want to be good stewards of what God has called us to, and it's obvious that God is moving, but, the, but the, the primary goal for all of us is not dollar amounts. I've told you this for five and a half years. Every single year, our budget has been in the black. We, we want to be good stewards. We're not, we don't do generosity anything because we need more money from you. Jesus doesn't need more money from any of us. He wants our hearts. So we're calling each of us into something deeper. Okay, the goal here is that all of us would ask God, what would it look like for us to participate in helping raise up the next generation? So I want to challenge you at the end of today's message to ask God that same question, okay? If you have a Bible, meet me in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, okay? If, you, if you're new to Christianity, the Bible, New Testament, it's the very first book of the New Testament. It'll be on the screens too, Matthew 6. Let me start with a statement here. That's going to shape where we're going. Here it is. The direction of your life will be determined, or will determine the destination of your life. Think about it. Direction always determines destination, doesn't it? Imagine this. Imagine you get in your car, so it's Thanksgiving week. Um, your kids were off of school on Friday, and you get in your car, and you're like, we're going to go to Miami for the week. It's warm down there. So you get on I-85, and you start heading north towards Charlotte. I don't care how badly you want to go to Miami you're never going to go there if you're going the wrong direction. The direction sets the destination. Today, I want to look at one of the most familiar passages that Jesus teaches about money, and I want to begin again with a radical idea, and here it is. Jesus doesn't want generosity from you. He wants it for you. Jesus does not want generosity from you. He wants it for you, and here's why. God has no needs. It's not like God's up in heaven wondering how he's going to pay his next light bill. By the way, did you know that Jesus talks about money more than any other topic in the Bible? Scholars will tell you if you actually added it up, one out of every three things that Jesus talks about is money. And again, it's not because he needs it. He hung the stars in the sky. He created everything. He doesn't, he doesn't take up a single offering in the Bible. Not one. Ever. Matter of fact, when he needed to pay a tax, he put a coin in a fish's mouth so he could pull it out and pay the tax. If there was something going on here about money then he would have talked about it. But there's something deeper going on about generosity, and it's our hearts. See, he doesn't start GoFundMe pages. He doesn't take up offerings. He doesn't do any of that. What he wants is he wants the direction of your heart to be set on something better towards heaven because that will dictate your destination. What you're going to see today is that Jesus doesn't care at all about the dollars. He cares about our hearts, and oftentimes those things get in between our heart, and our relationship with God. So here's my disclaimer, and I give this every single time, okay? If this feels icky to you, and I get it, if this is your first experience, and you're like, man, he just sounds like a fundraiser, here, here it is. I want to make a deal with you. Hear me out, and at the end of this message, if you still disagree with me, don't give a dime of your money here. Go give it somewhere else. And I mean that. I tell you that all the time. Because I care more about you being a generous person than I do about filling line items on our budget. I, I, and I, I'm telling you in the most humble way, we're not trying to get money out of your pockets. What we really want is we want for everybody in this room to be a generous person. And I think God wants that too. Listen, generosity and stewardship are two principles that will revolutionize the direction of your life and help you to live in freedom. Check it out. Matthew 6, 19, here's what he says. 
Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's break this down for a second. Jesus starts with the negative. Do not. That's what he says. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And then he moves to the positive. But instead, lay up for yourself. I'm sorry. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. See, the reality is, is this stewardship principle can shift everything about us. Every single person in this room has treasures. And where you leverage them speaks a whole lot about you. There's an imperative command here. Do not, Jesus says. And then he says, do. Those are imperatives. If I could say it this way, here's what he's telling you. Stop leveraging for the temporary and start investing in the eternal. Let me just ask you a question. Why do you think we invest so much of our money into temporary things? You ever thought about that? Y'all, I've thought about this a lot. And here's what I think. I think for most of us, we're trying to control the future that is really uncontrollable. Matter of fact, just a couple weeks ago, I, I, had, I had the opportunity to take my daughter with me on a trip to New York City, and we, we did it all. Um, one night, we decided we're going to go ice skating at Rockefeller Center, and then we got on the subway, and we headed out to Coney Island, uh, where she was super excited about going on all of those roller coasters. And she kept talking to me about how she was going to get me on the roller coaster, and I told her, sweetheart, there ain't no way that I'm doing that, so your mom will do it with you. <laughs> I told her, I pay you, I pay you play. Well, here's the reality. Listen, those roller coasters are safe. It's not like we're at the coming fair and some carny who had absolutely no business putting that thing together got on it. Which, by the way, can we talk about this? Because, like, we never get on those rides, but we always put our kids on those rides. <laughs> but it, look, I was paralyzed by a fear of something that had no validity. I think that's the way we do it. I have a whole motto. What we, talk, we talk about this all the time. Don't write your own worst story. The reality is, is most of the time, it doesn't turn out the way that you think it's going to, but you absolutely have no control over your future anyway. When it comes down to it, it's a trust issue. When Jesus says to do this, you have to trust him. I, I love this. Um, Moses, at the end, scholars will tell you he's at the end of his life whenever he writes Psalm 90. And listen to what he says, maybe some of the wisest words in the Bible. He says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. See what he's doing? He's, he's talking about God's sovereignty. You've provided. He says, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now, verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we might have a heart of wisdom. See what he's saying? This old man is looking back at his life and there's a, there's a sense of perspective because he's at the end of it and he says, Lord, if you would just teach us that life is really short 
If you would give us a perspective that, that, that helps us to, to be wise with every single day. I told you this two weeks ago. I was having lunch with a friend of mine who's in his 90s, and we just went on a trip a couple years ago to London together. And he says, Billy, the most pivotal moment of that trip was listening to you on the phone with your daughter doing bedtime. And in my mind, I felt so bad because I'm thinking, I hate doing that. And he said, that was the sweetest moment. He says, don't ever forget the moments. Teach us the number of our days. To live with a different kind of perspective. Because when you understand that life is short, you stop climbing the wrong ladders. How many men do I know that tell me that they climbed the corporate ladder their entire life only to find out that it was leaning up against the wrong building? And they wish they could go back. There's two things that Moses wants you to understand if you, if you really read Psalm 90 properly. Number one is this. God is eternal and you are not. Jesus is saying the same thing. Stop investing in a kingdom that will not last. It's like this. Imagine this rope right here. The end of this rope represents your life. This knot up here. I don't know, what is it? 80, 70 years? Some of you, if you're lucky. Others, it's not gonna be that long. And you live and you leverage your entire life, maybe the first 30 or 40 years to enjoy the last 30. And what Jesus is saying, if this represents your life, then all of this represents eternity. All of it. And his question for you and I is, why are we leveraging our life for that little bit Whenever he's already told you in Revelation chapter 21 that he's gonna be your God and you're gonna be his people, he will wipe away every tear from your eyes and death will be no more and you will be on this earth in a body living a sinless life for all of eternity. And instead, all we do is we leverage for the next 30 or 40 years. You know what Moses is saying? God, teach us not to do that. Teach us to realize how short this is so that we make the best use of our time. Or Randy Alcorn, he said it like this. I love this. He said, imagine, imagine in your head that you are a northern businessman during the Civil War. And now you've accumulated a lot of wealth because you're living in the South during the Civil War and you've got all of this Confederate money. But it's becoming clear to you the inevitability of war that you're gonna lose the war. He says, imagine that you're that guy. What should you do? Immediately, you should begin to sell off all of that Confederate money because shortly it's not going to be worth anything. It's going to become worthless. Here's what he said. He said, for us to accumulate vast earthly treasures in the face of the inevitable future is equivalent to stockpiling Confederate money. It's not just wrong, it's stupid. I'm telling you, Jesus is saying the same exact thing. He's telling you the same exact thing. But let me just tell you, there's something even deeper going on here. Jesus is not just about pragmatism. It's not like he's looking at the stock market and saying, leverage your assets along this mutual fund so that you're pragmatic. No, he's telling you that what you do is like a smoke that leads back to the fire of your heart. Jesus wants you to know that when you invest in the temporary, it has its roots in a trust issue. So let's just be real for a second. When you dig underneath the surface and you think about your investments, most of the investments that you make in the capitals of this world, they really do go back to this illusion of security that I can leverage myself because I know what it's gonna do for me and my life in the future. But if I can just say this clearly, you don't know what your future holds. I've been in this game long enough to tell you that it doesn't work out the way you think it does for everybody. So what 
if we lived differently. And listen, I'm not telling you not to be wise. I'm not telling you not to invest in your future. That, that would be dumb. And the Bible says a good father leaves an inheritance to his kids. That's good. That's biblical. What I am saying is this. What you choose to do first with your money determines the, the, the direction of your life. Here's what I mean. When you give to God first, you have to trust him with the rest. You, you see what I'm saying? And that's why we do something here called first fruits giving. What most of us do is we take care of all of our needs, and then if we have anything left over, then we give it to God. But the reality is, is we're not leveraging anything that we have for him. We're giving out of our leftovers, and God's like, I just want you to trust me. How do I know that? Listen to his summary statement in Matthew chapter 6. Listen to what he says. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. This is Jesus after he gives this teaching. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? To say it a different way, is not life more than the nice house you live in and the sports teams that your kids play on? That's what he's saying. He says, look at the birds of the air. You ever go in their backyard and look at the birds? I am because we just planted new sod and seed in my backyard and I watch those little jokers pick it up every day. <laughs> and God's feeding them. That's what he says. I'm through me. In my hard-earned money, he's feeding the birds. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Listen, listen, listen. Are you not of more value than they? Of which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? Don't you know that's true? All of your late nights, worrying about your kids, Worrying about your bills. It doesn't add a single span of time to your life. Matter of fact, it's probably taken away from it. Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. How they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Here it is. Oh, you of little faith. See it? It's a heart issue. Therefore, Jesus says, don't be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, if you know that's a synonym for unbelievers, for those who don't trust God, seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and all of his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. He's not saying you can't seek those things. Just seek God first. Listen, Jesus is not trying to take money out of your pockets. He's trying to take idols out of your heart. Okay? The greatest idol of all is you being the captain of your own ship. It was the very first sin in the Bible. It was what Adam and Eve did. It wasn't about a piece of fruit. It was them looking at God and saying, God, we don't need you. We can do this on our own. That's why Satan looked at them and said, did God really say that? If you eat this, you can live forever. And they're like, oh, that sounds like a great idea. You'll be like God. It's the same lie that the enemy keeps putting out in front of you. Hey, you can be your own God. You're starting to see why all this matters? When you decide to give to Jesus first, you're actively rebelling against the idea of the illusion of control for your own life, and you're leaning into Jesus and trust. And I'm telling you, you ain't in control anyway. So what if you just acknowledge that with your words and your actions and you leaned in to him to trust you? So let me just ask you, here's the question. Where are your treasures? The way you answer that question will determine the trajectory or the direction 
of your heart. Listen to what Jesus says next, verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? I'm going to be honest with you. On the surface, this analogy doesn't seem to fit. It kind of like, all right, that was a hard left turn. What are we doing here? But there is a principle that goes deep if you actually get it. Here's the picture. Imagine that you got up in the middle of the night. It's pitch black dark because you had to use the bathroom. And you, some of you don't even have to imagine that. Like that's every night for you. Right? And somehow there's this, there's this magnet. Okay? You, you, we all have the magnet. The magnet is on the end of your toe. And the other end of that magnet is where? On the dresser. Right? And you kick it and break your toe on your way to the bathroom. Why? Because it's dark and your eye isn't working. So because your eye's not working, your whole body suffers. Because I don't know about you, but at 2 a.m. when you kick the end of that thing with your pinky toe, you ain't going back to sleep. You've lost your sleep. You're throbbing. Everything's, you're mad at the world. Like you just want to go hit somebody. Here, here's the analogy, okay? Here's what happens. The analogy is money is like the eye of your body. If your eyes aren't working properly, your entire body suffers. And listen, here's what Jesus is telling you. If your money isn't working properly, it impacts your entire body. The inputs determine the outputs. What you put in is what you take out. If you can't see, you can't walk properly. Listen to me. If the inputs of your life are all lust and pornography, I'm telling you the outputs are going to be detrimental to everything you do. Everything. Try to have a healthy relationship if that's what you're always putting inside of you. If your inputs are always looking at comparison of the identities of the people around you and you never feel like you measure up because you don't have a bigger house, you don't have a nicer car, you're not as pretty as they are, tell me what the outputs are going to look like. Insecurity. Always striving for the next thing. I'm telling you, it's really practical. The inputs determine the outputs. And what Jesus is saying is where you invest your money communicates to your entire body what you value most. If you're generous, let's just be practical. If you're generous to this church, guess what you're going to do? You're going to be invested in this church. The input is going to determine the output of your time and your talent and your resources. If you're stewarding your resources on your identity, then you're going to leverage your money to get the newer stuff, the better stuff, the nicer clothes, the next trendy pair of shoes. You're going to work for those things, right? If you're investing your money in the stock market and that's where your input of your security is, that's going to be great until the next crash happens. How many of you were adults in 2008 and you saw the detrimental impact of the wrong inputs? Listen, the direction of your money determines the destination of your heart. I'm telling you, that's why these conversations are so important. They're not about money. Did you know? I found this fascinating. There's more warnings towards the rich in Scripture than anybody else in the Bible. And it's not because there's anything wrong with being rich. As a matter of fact, I think God wants you to be blessed. Uh, 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 Nolan read this, 2 Corinthians 8. But I think he wants it so that you can be a more generous person. See, but before you can do that, you have to understand that the greatest pitfall of wealth is independence. Listen, there's a lot of truth 
There's a lot of truth in that, if we're honest. I just think we gotta take a moment to be honest. Like, when was the last time that you asked God to provide for you to have a meal? I don't know about you, I don't. I just go to that zoo on Windward Parkway called Costco, right? And I go buy 30 pounds of bacon. I wish they'd give me 12, but I can only buy 30, so I eat way too much bacon. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said. Charles Spurgeon said, it is a very serious thing to grow rich. Of all the temptations to which God's children are exposed, it is the worst, because it's the one that they do not dread, and therefore, it is the more subtle temptation. See what he's saying? It's not sinful to have more, but it's the greatest temptation, because it's a temptation of self-reliance, of independence. Right, it's, it's, That's why generosity matters so much. Listen to me. Generosity is an active rebellion against the status quo. It is you with your mind and your wallet telling your heart to follow Jesus. Like, I don't think you need to go sell everything and be homeless to experience this. Matter of fact, I think that would be dumb. I think you need to just start developing healthy hab- habits and rhythms into your life, like first fruits giving. Some of you need to just go online today and make a decision that you're going to do online giving and set a reoccurring donation. And not, again, not to fill a line item, but because it tells your mind and your body, I'm in this, and there's no escaping it. You've got to say, God, you're going to get my first and my best. I think it's really practical wisdom. Teach this to your kids. Give away 10%, save 10%, live on the rest. I do that with my time and my talent, too, I think. I try to think about my time like this. God, the first 10% of my year is yours. The first 10% of my month is yours. The first 10% of my week is yours. And the first 10% of my day is yours. And live on the rest. Could you imagine if you did that? If you evaluated your life in the very beginning? And here's why I think that matters. is because in our climate, and our culture, the currency of the day is not money, it's time. And for some of you, it's easier to stroke a check than it is to say, I'm gonna go blank check with my life on the table. God, I'm all yours. So what if you thought through even your time like that? Do you think like that? Listen to what Jesus says. He continues right after that in verse 24. Do not, uh, no one, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. If you underline words in your Bible, that word serve, it's kind of a religious word that can be translated something like worship. Basically, what he's saying is what you serve for your provision and your security is what you'll ultimately worship. Jesus is saying you cannot serve God and money because at some point they go in different directions. Now watch this. The only way to stop serving something is to submit to serve something else. The only way to stop serving that money is to give away the control of your life to God. Really practically, when God has control over your life and your finances and your time, you begin to invest in a better kingdom. And the things of this world begin to lose their grip on you. In the third century, a guy named Superion, uh, the Bishop of Carthage, listen to what he said. He was talking about the affluence in his community, and I found this to be so, so convicting. He says their, pover- their property held them in chains, chains which shackled their courage and choked their faith and hampered their judgment and throttled their souls. 
If they stored up their treasures in heaven, they would not now have an enemy and a thief within their own household. They think of themselves as owners, whereas they rather are being owned. Enslaved as they are to their own property, they are not the masters of their money, but its slaves. Y'all, that's what's at stake here. It's not your stuff, it's your heart. It's the things that have you. This is what Jesus is getting after. Don't be foolish to think that there's not an enemy out there that is more crafty and creative than you think he is. Sometimes I think that you guys think that the devil is walking around in a Halloween costume looking like Scary Man ready to get you. No, what he's doing is he's subtly convincing you that it's okay, that you are the exception to the rule. Because everybody in here, that's what you think. Automatically, you're like, not me. Like, I get that. That principle works, but not me. No, the reality is, is you're not the exception to the rule. We're all the same. And if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we're going to lean into that objection. And what's going to end up happening is we're going to walk down that same trap. Jesus is saying the very same things to you. Don't let those things be your taskmaster. J.D. Greer, um, my old pastor, he said there's three categories that people fall into when it comes to money. I think these are simple and just very pragmatic. Number one, he says splendor. He says these people depend on their money for happiness. So they spend their money to fill voids in their heart and they use it to maximize enjoyment. He says they go on endless vacations, engage in activity after activity, always chasing the next thing to be happy. Now, I don't, you don't raise your hand, don't, but evaluate that. Are you the splendor? says the other kind is savers. Savers are the people who go to the other extreme, right? They, they find their happiness in their security, so they limit their spending to leverage for the unknown. Most people fall into one of those two categories. We're either the, the splendor or the saver. But then J.D. says there's a third kind, and that's the steward. This person looks to God for their primary source of happiness and security, so they leverage their assets to build God's kingdom, and they find their joy in Jesus. The key to this, this person, is they, they don't see their money as their primary key to happiness or security, and that frees them from the bondage of their stuff, so they serve God instead. See, the key to all of this, the key to not being controlled is to see yourself as a steward and not an owner. Listen to me. You will become much more happy in your life when you realize that God has given you the opportunity to manage assets and not to own them. He owns them. And when I say that, I'm talking about even your own life. I've told you this before. Gratitude is the attitude that elevates you from owner to steward. Let, let me give you an example of what this looks like. Your education. Listen, y'all. Most of you in this room have college degrees or graduate degrees. or, or you, you, you probably have a high school diploma, and you worked really, really, really hard for that. And I get that. And you should applaud yourself for that. But what if you started with the mentality that even your education is a gift? Think about it. The cognitive abilities to even be able to learn were a gift from God. You could have been born with a mental disability. How about the the location in which you live? You know, I drive my two girls to school every single day, and sometimes when we pull up to, like, the nicest schools in the world, I tell them, and I kid you not, I say, sweetheart, you should be grateful that you get to go to Vickery Creek Elementary. So do you realize that there are little girls in Afghanistan who are waking up this morning and they don't get to go to school? 
Do you know what the difference between a little girl in Afghanistan is and my daughter? You know what it is? Geography. That's it. That's it. See, the reason why my girls get educated is not because they're smarter. It's because of where they are born. Y'all, what if you started with a stewardship mentality that every single thing that you have is a gift from God? Like, you didn't earn the right to have a mind. Yes, you used your mind. Praise God for that, and you should have. But what you start to do is you start to see yourself with gratitude. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for allowing me the blessing of growing up where I do and the family that I have and the opportunities that I have. And then I took advantage of them and I multiplied them. That's how you should think about everything that you have. It's a mindset of stewardship and not ownership. See, if God gave you a mind, and he did, if God gave you an environment to flourish, and he did, don't you think that you should recognize that every good gift comes from above? When you do, watch this, you stop saying, my will be done, and you start saying, thy will be done. Because it's all his anyway. And that's how you release yourself from the bondage of stuff. So I want to land the plane by giving you three practical ways to start thinking about your money. Here they are. Number one, giving should be an invitation, not an obligation. Again, I'll, I'll put it out there. If you feel icky... Don't give it here. It's not an obligation. See, generosity, God wants for you, not from you. There's something deeper going on with generosity, and it has nothing to do with line items on a budget. It's an invitation to a journey of freedom. I've already told you this, so let me just say it again. God doesn't need your money. He never has. In the most humble way, listen, we don't either. We don't either. I can promise you, I don't do sermons like this to grow our church. <laughs> Lord knows, none of you like that. Some of you are like, I can't believe I brought my friend today. <laughs> right? I do them because I believe it's an invitation into freedom. It's an invitation to trust God. Because when you let go of control of what's already uncontrollable, you actually begin to live a more free life. That's why Jesus says this in verse 25, Therefore I tell you, this is his conclusion. Don't be anxious. Notice, what is he saying? Control brings anxiety. We all know that. Go try to control how your kids grow up. You can't do it anyway. All you're going to be is anxious all the time, worried about what's next. Don't be anxious about your life, about what you'll eat or what you'll drink, about your body. Again, those type of things to us in this culture, we don't, we're not anxious about what we're going to eat or drink, but, but fill in the different gaps. Don't be anxious if your kid's going to make the travel sports team or if you're going to net a yield on your 401k this year or if inflation is going to crush your next vacation. Got it? All right, you got to contextualize a little bit. Don't be anxious about those things. Don't be anxious about your body. your identity. Don't be anxious about the fact that you bought a Peloton during COVID and you hadn't used it in three years. <laughs> right? I mean, maybe that's speaking to my own soul. I just sold mine, by the way. It was the greatest day of freedom in my entire life. <laughs> but I still have a YMCA membership that never gets used. So I'm struggling here. But don't be anxious. God's going to provide. What does he say? Is not life more than those things? You better believe it is. You better believe it is. It's more than where you grew up, the house you lived in. When you get to the end of it all, 
you're not going to care all that much. You're going to care about the relationships you had, the type of person you were, and if you thrived in a life with Jesus. So why not just start leveraging for those things now? See, what generosity does is it takes you from this to this. And it says, God, I'm not just doing this with my money, but I'm doing this with my anxiety. And I'm actively trusting you. God is inviting you into a deeper journey of trust. By the way, that's what all the spiritual disciplines are about. Can I just tell you? Like Sabbath is not about being less productive during the week. It's an invitation into trusting God that he's going to provide for you. So when you actively rebel against the status quo of working 70 hours a week all day, every day, and you, re- you realize it, this, this, this was revolutionary for me. One day whenever I took a day off, and I was like, oh man, it was okay. Things still got done. Like they didn't need me as much as I thought they did. It's a a rebellion against the status quo, and generosity is no different. It's the exact same discipline. Some of you need to start giving today. And I'm going to be really clear again. It's not because we need your money. It's because we want your heart. And oftentimes, we're just like this. And we're not all in with God. Here's number two. Giving should be cheerful, not reluctant. Do you know God loves a cheerful giver? Listen to it. Listen to 2 Corinthians 9. The point is this, Paul would say, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his own heart, listen, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You see the posture of the heart right here? It's not about dollar amounts. It's about joy. That word cheerful, it's the Greek word hilarion, where we get the word hilarious from. He's almost saying he's a giggling giver. Like, you know that person that can't wait to give you the gift, and they're kind of giggling giving it to you because they find so much joy in giving the gift? That's what Jesus says your giving should be like. Like, you should be giggling and excited about what you're doing. And here's the reality. The reason why you're not is because you don't know the why behind the what. You haven't connected your giving to the mission. What you're doing is you're doing it out of obligation. So let me just, let me tell you, let me tell you what your giving and your generosity has done at City Church this year alone. Listen, because of your generosity, you have fueled the mission of our church. You have spent, you have spent your time and your money by sending three people on mission trips this year to the DR, to Southeast Asia and Kenya. You funded Grace, who's in this room, to go overseas for two years, and she's come back to go to seminary for a year to go overseas again long-term. And by the way, we're able to pay, I think, 100% of her tuition to go to seminary this year because of you. You've helped fund church plants in Greenville, South Carolina, Santa Domingo, and Kuala Lumpur, all three third world countries. You've allowed us to bring, nobody laughed at that. That was for Dustin. I'm sorry. You've allowed us to bring church, bring a church planting residency on staff here. And we are going to plant a church out of this. And we have sent two families out to help be a part of a church plant in Roswell. You have served our city through multiple local missions partners, given away thousands of dollars. Over 10% of our budget goes directly outside of the four walls of this church. We do serve our city events. And the last one, over a hundred of you served in five different locations. You funded city men of events, belong women's events. You've created environments where hundreds of people have heard the gospel. And just in two weeks, we're going to add our 10th person 
by the grace of God, getting baptized here this year alone at City Church. Y'all, God is doing far more than you could ever ask or imagine, and that's what your giving is going to. See, you should give with a smile on your face because you're multiplying as you give together in order to impact the world, and that's what we're all about. We're about seeing eternal impacts. You have to understand the why behind the what if you're going to be a generous person. Here's the last one, number three. Giving should be generous and not stingy. Now, this one's difficult, but let me just tell you, I think God wants to stretch you a bit. And I think he wants to do that because when he stretches you, that's where trust is built. It's not about tipping off of the extra. It's about trusting God with it all. Here's a plumb line that's changed my life. We want to live sufficiently and give extravagantly. That should be the posture of your heart. Think about it. When God talks about giving, you know this in the Bible, he talks about giving your firstborn and your first animal. In an agrarian culture, giving your first animal and your first crop, like that's a dangerous thing because you don't know if there's going to be more crop. You don't know if any more of the animals are going to produce. Think about that. It was all about trust. You had to trust that God would bring the rain. You had to trust that God would provide for you. Matter of fact, listen, God didn't even just give the leftovers. Listen to what he says. Most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave. You see it? He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Here's what I know is that God didn't give you his leftovers. He gave you his first and he gave you his best. And that's why this is not a religious activity that you need to conquer. God doesn't need anything from us. He wants something for us. Listen, Jesus has already done everything necessary to save you. You get that, right? It's, it doesn't, if you're trying to fill up a bucket of religious activities that earn the favor of God, all you're going to do is be crushed over and over and over again. You cannot earn your way to heaven. All you can do is respond to the generosity that's already been done for you through Jesus. And that's the only way to become a generous person. The, the Puritans, they called this the explosive power of a new affection. They, they said, if you ever want to stop sinning, this, this is big, okay? If you ever want to stop sinning, you can't hate the sin. If you ever want to be generous, you can't, you can't just like force yourself to do it. To do it. Here's what they said. If you ever want to stop doing something, you've got to be attracted to something more than what you had. That's the only way to do it. Hey, you have to be motivated by something that you want more than something you have. Think about it like this. Imagine, imagine, since we're talking about teenagers, imagine you walked in the room and some teenage boy is hanging out with his teenage girlfriend and, and he starts to have these thoughts in his mind that teenage boys tend to have, right? And now imagine that her six foot four Navy SEAL dad walked into the room. He's not thinking about that anymore. The explosive power of a new affection, right? He's thinking about the preservation of his life more than he's thinking about that girl. That's how this works, by the way. Again, let me just extrapolate that. Men, if you're struggling with lust, you're not going to fight your way out of it. You've got to fall in love with Jesus. That's the only way it works. Or else you're always going to get in this cycle of problems. You've got to fall more in love with Jesus and want the gospel more. Now listen, listen, here's the affection. When you get the gospel, it changes everything. When you get... When you get that you were dead in your sins, alienated from God with a one-way ticket to hell, but God, but God, rich in love, gave, 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 gave his only son. 
to live the perfect life that you could never live, to die the death you deserve to die, to raise from the dead in order to bring you back into relationship with him, to give you undeserved, everlasting life. When you get that, you start to understand that everything in this world for all of eternity is yours. The things of this world begin to grow strangely dim. And you don't live for them anymore. You begin to die to yourself to live for something better because you recognize that when Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, and those who try to save their lives will lose it, and those who lose their lives for my sake will gain it, you begin to realize that that is real. And you respond in gratitude. See, you stop giving out of obligation and you start being invited into the gospel. By the way, that's why I love that Jesus ends Matthew 6 like this. Therefore, friends, don't be anxious. Saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear for the unbelievers? They're the ones who should be anxious. They seek after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Now listen to it. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Why? For tomorrow is anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Hey, bro, you got enough to worry about today. I'll take care of tomorrow. So seek first. Seek first. Seek first the kingdom of God. And all that other stuff I'll take care of. What if today you decided that you're going to stop trying to control a future that you have no control over anyway? And you just decided with your life that you're going to walk day by day with your Savior. Psalm 119, 105, the Lord's word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I tell you this all the time. If you turn off all the lights in this room and you put a lamp down on your feet, what do you see next? Your next step. Your next step in your next step. If there's a cliff ahead, you'll see it when you get there. I think Jesus is calling you to just take steps with him. So that's my, my invitation. It's not about dollar signs. It's an invitation into relationship to trust. And I think generosity tends to be the thing, whether it be our time, our talent, or our treasures that keep us from experiencing the deeper intimacy that Jesus is inviting you into. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for your word. I know sometimes words are, are not easy to digest, but you're a good father. And you know that you give good gifts to your children. God, the greatest gift of all is a relationship with you. And that's what we desire and that's what we ask for. So Lord, would you help us to walk with you all the days of our life and to do so in gratitude? I pray in Jesus' name, amen.